Well, this evening is going to be, um, as it seems, I feel like I say this all the time, it's going to be a slight bit different um, in the sense that it's not as intensively textual. It's a little bit more, um, it's a synthesis, it's more wisdom-based than it is knowledge-based. And so um, I, I want to put that out there in the sense that it is, it is my estimation um, that I'm, I'm really trying to tie in biblical principles into something that is digestible more than I am just really exegeting a passage tonight. And if you've been around here for any amount of time, you know that that is by far our norm, is to really do a deep dive into each and every single word as we go through a passage. But tonight it's going to be a little bit broader strokes, bigger picture, attempting to sort of capture the, the scriptural flavor on a topic, if you will. And so... Yes, there is. Um, there, I, I won't. I will not deny that there is some sense, and I try as much as I can to either keep my opinion out of it or to let you know when my opinion is going to be mixed in. I sense that tonight, you know, when you try to tie different data points together, there's an inevitable element in which you do mix in a little bit of your own personal view, and so you know, take try to try to pick those things out, and I'm I'm open to talking about those things, but I hope that you find that there are reasonable extrapolation and that these things are helpful and will will actually help you practically. Um, in terms of where we are, we are in the marriage series. Um, we've gone through just sort of a general look um, through that intimacy opener lesson. The, the, we, the marriage series is entitled just that, The Intimate Marriage. And so from there we've gone into a little bit on gender roles, uh, more in terms of what, what does it look like, how women work in the home, how Men work in the home is where we've been last week. Anyone, what did, what did y'all take away from last week? Yes. Um, that, broadly speaking, men have not been doing a great job lately of taking on responsibility and um, doing the duties necessary to live a godly life, and that the real aspect of being a man is to pursue God and to be pursuing knowledge so that you can help guide your family in the same direction towards vision that you have with guns. Okay. Any other personal takeaways, male or female? Yeah. Men ought to be prophet, priest, and king of the relationship and the household, and that's just really like, stuck out to me. Sure. What does that mean, prophet, priest, king? Unistriplex. Prophet. <laughs> that is a big word for me. In my understanding, it means man is leading spiritually, leading physically as provider and in provision and vision as well as Hey, being spiritually the yes. leader in the so household, in whether it's in leading or presenting children <coughs> to the household, in leading his wife okay. and his children. Yeah. Welcome to the show, Hayden. All right. Um, I miss Hayden. Hayden's been a while. Well, if you don't mind, Hayden, um, his father's having some medical issues and white blood cell counts are low, and so he's not risking infection spreading. But, um, anything Hi, else? Okay, any any other takeaways from last week? One more and then we'll we'll move on. Unless unless that really summarizes it that well. Alrighty, very good then. So what I have what what I what I love about Paul and hate about Paul all in the same breath is that Paul is just overwhelmingly generic sometimes, right? Like, it's helpful because you can't get out of what he says. It applies to literally everything, but it also applies to literally everything. And so uh, what I hope tonight is, in some ways, a way to break down what we talked about last week. If I was a little bit more textually intensive last week, I hope that it laid that, that sort of groundwork, that, that, that framework in, in which we can really work. And then tonight we can sort of fill in the boxes on what does it look like to love your wife? What does it look like to sacrifice for them? What does it look like to seek their holiness and so forth? Um, it, it can just be a little bit difficult to, that's a, ni- that's a nice thought, right? Love your wife, sacrifice for your wife, that's, that's great. But what does that mean? And hopefully tonight, even though there's still rather general principles, I hope that we can sort of color, color in those lines just a little bit for us. So I have three main words that I want to sort of outline tonight. I told you, I promised you this week would be more organized than last week. Um, I have three main words that I want you to track along with, and then a fourth that you'll just feel interlaced within. The three words for tonight are vision, provision, 
And then finally, um, vision, provision, and what? Let me check. It might be an issue. No. Oh, vision, provision, and passivity. Vision, provision, and passivity. How much does it hurt you that you couldn't find a P word for vision? It was, well, I, d I liked it because of the Latin, like, provision. That's what I was going for there. So we'll, we'll tie that in, in a moment. But the fourth word that I just want you to sort of keep in the back of your mind is sort of interlaced through all of them is passion. Passion is something that you'll find just floating around in amongst all these concepts that we're going to address. So let's go ahead and start with vision. Um, I, I desire to start with that word vision. Without vision, provision won't occur and passivity will. Okay? Vision is our cornerstone in order to achieve provision and avoid passivity. Any accompanying passion that you may have will be misguided without any vision. Proverbs 29:18 ESV, preferably. For there is no prophetic vision, the people cast off restraint, but blessed is he who keeps the law. Man, if we don't have a model, a vision, a sort of standard uh, a case study, if you will, on how to live our lives, then we will perish. You will go off the track without a model. Instead, tying these bits of scripture together, if, if you're not following the path that scripture is teaching, this is what will happen. Judges 17, 6. In those days, there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the idea of that passage in Judges is to say there is no leader, there is no spiritual head in this communal group. Therefore, everyone does what was right in their own eyes. And what I want to draw out of that for us is that without strong leadership in the home, every home will devolve to relativism. Okay, Every wife, every child, every person in a home without some guide to say this is the correct path and also some authority figure to correct you when you deviate from it, when you can't catch the vision, you will devolve into your own moral compass and your own relativistic system. I, I, this is such a hard concept to, to say unless you've experienced it, but there comes a point in life when you, when you sort of catch the vision that your parents have been trying to instill in you for years and you say ah okay I finally get what they've been saying right like you need to do this you need to do this and they even explain why but you just don't catch the comprehensive vision that's okay that's what it means to be a developing child and and when you're leading a home you have to be the one who has that vision who has that drive who has the kind authority to lead and channel people to see that vision. That is, that is the job of the man in the home. The most successful company heads are not paid to push papers. What are they paid to do? Two things. Two things come to mind. I'm missing Trey right now. What are the, what are the two main... They have connections and then they have uh, ideas that they can pour into the company. Absolutely. They're paid to have ideas and they're paid to make three big decisions a day, right? They don't want a bunch of decisions. They don't want a bunch of little things to worry about. They're the vision setters. They're the general pattern and direction setters. This is what it means to be successful at leading in your home. You must learn to see the future before it ever happens, which may sound... I want to balance that statement because there is a sense in which we need to be careful about not being obsessive about tomorrow, but we also have to be able to prepare according to normal patterns of life. Men have to be adept at seeing this is a very possible outcome. What can I do to prepare to be ready for that? Proverbs 22, 3. The prudence uh, sees danger and himself let the simple go on and suffer for it the prudent man sees a problem before it happens and prepares for it the stupid or the simple just goes right ahead they don't even see it or the even seeing it they just proceed anyways what I men what I want you to be able to do is to think one year five year ten year 25 40 year intervals and preparing for them yet not being anxious over them 
On one hand, you have Christ bidding us to not take great anxiety and great thought on tomorrow because what's going to happen is what's going to happen. You can't add a cubit to your height just by wishing it. And yet you get this balanced teaching in Proverbs that we need to be preparing and readying ourselves for the future. Proverbs 24, 30 through 34. I passed by the field of a sluggard, by the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles, and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and considered it. I looked and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So what is the answer then? Trying to synthesize and balance those things. The more I thought about it, the more the answer is rather obvious. Your preparation for tomorrow has to be inherently built into your way of living today. And what I mean by that is you aren't preoccupied and every single thought worrying about tomorrow and being anxious about tomorrow, but the patterns of life that you just are enjoying living in need to be setting you up for success tomorrow. Okay? So what I mean by that is, are you obsessed over saving, I don't know, throwing over $50,000 to get a down payment on a house, whatever. You know, you're anxious over that, you're wanting that. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is you can live today and be, a, be in the moment and yet simultaneously preparing for tomorrow, right? Like you saving $400 a week maybe and preparing for that thing in the future doesn't mean you're anxious and preoccupied and inflexible, right? The, the skill is to have a plan and not be so obsessed with your plan that you can't deviate from it and react to the happenings of life. What does this look like practically? Some, um, one friend uh, that a lot of you know asked me uh, at a meeting at Culver's when he was struggling to make decisions, how do you make decisions? And, and I think this is the number one key practical step to making good decisions as a man, as a husband, etc. The first thing that you have to do, and it's, it's stolen right out of the corporate playbook, is you have to develop a vision statement for your life. Develop a vision statement for your life. Men's basic fear is a fear of failure. Men will do anything to avoid failure. And you know the fastest way to avoid failure? Never have set a goal to fail by, right? If you never set a vision, then you don't have to worry about missing <laughs> that vision. It, 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 is, it is so much easier to just aimlessly wander and flounder around than it is to set a vision because setting a vision commits you, if to no one else but you and God, it commits you to a path. And it says, this is where I want to end up. And if you don't do that, then, then you're stuck with looking yourself in the face in the mirror and saying, I failed to do X. And that's a very, very difficult thing, um, thing to swallow, that I failed, especially as men, to say, I failed. It was no one else's fault. I did it. This is me. I failed to accomplish what I wanted to do. In order for success to be genuine, the opportunity to have failure must be equally real, right? If you want to actually succeed in life, then you can't have a safety net. If there was no actual potential to fail, then success becomes meaningless. And that's true in every area of life that I've at least experienced. If you have no actual ability to fail, then it's just patronizing, it's just a participation trophy. And that doesn't do anything for satisfying that, that sole desire to, to make something of yourself and to have a meaningful life. So you have to go to the end in your mind and say, this is the vision statement, this is where I want to end up in life. And then work back from there. And that is how you end up saying, where I wanna be at 40, where I wanna be at 25 years, where I wanna be at 10 years, where I wanna be in one year. This is used in the financial realm all the time, which is fine, but my goal here is not necessarily to make you rich, although if you apply these principles well, they will, in this, they will make you rich. Uh, if you use index funds well and apply these principles, they'll do the same thing in the financial realm. 
But what I am saying is that these are the same important principles for how to live spiritually. I want to end up X on my race, therefore, and you back that up all the way until the present moment. And I was thinking about how beautiful it is on the, on the drive here, thinking about Paul's comment about having you know, completed his race, right? And I thought about how beautiful it was that even the best of athletes don't come to complete the race doesn't mean that you never messed up on that on that race. Right. Like we fail the best athletes take a bad turn. And yet you can still finish your course, even if you mess up. And that's what's so beautiful. You have to set that end goal and be able to work back in order to achieve it. So to give you a, a practical example for for me, I've taken the adaptation of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one, as my vision statement in life. The, my chief end is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. From there, decisions become very simple. When you have one guiding principle, one guiding principle to master your entire life, decisions become much simpler because you have two options and you say, which one of these two options gets me closer to my intended outcome in life? A or B? The toughest decisions you'll ever face, I think, are the ones that are between two good choices. Those are the most frustrating because you're like, well, this, this is pretty good and this is good as well. And the thing is, <laughs> when you have a vision statement that is specific and intentional, one option may be very good. It's a good thing. But does that get me to where I am meant to be, right? It can be a good thing, but not be the thing for you. And so if you have one guiding principle, it will, it will help to, um, it will help to channel which way you are going. Um, I think, I think that I've used this in Koinonia a fair amount, um, in, in the sense of like, let's say that I want the end goal in my mind to be uh, we need to be more welcoming. I'll just use that as a, we need to be more welcoming. That's in three months, I want us to be more welcoming. Then you back that all the way down into what do I need to do this week? What is one small little step that I can take in order for us to be successful at accomplishing this bigger picture goal of being welcoming? And so in marriage then, this, this is part of what it means to lead. Together, you must decide where you want to end up in life, what do you want your life to look like in the final analysis? When everything is said and done, when you are buried six feet under, how do you want your life to go down on the pages of history? How do you want to be remembered? Okay, I've got that. All right, what do we need to do to get there? I want to be in this place in my career. I want to have this kind of a relationship with my kids. I want to increase the spiritual atmosphere in my home. So I will, and that's what follows, the action statement. So I will get a degree, start that side hustle, spend an evening a week with each kid, lead family devotions and so forth. Whether it's financial or, or spiritual, the principles are the exact same. This is perhaps the most, what I'm about to say is perhaps the most important piece of dating advice that I ever give to people. And it's tied right into this, this, this idea of having a vision. A woman does not, men, men, this is for men, a woman does not desire to be the pursuit herself. She desires to be invited in to pursue an adventure together, okay? A woman does not desire to be directly the adventure herself, but rather to be invited in to a greater adventure in which you are actually going somewhere meaningful with your life. Eventually, and this is what's, this is one of the nice things about having a long relationship, you really do get to see this, is eventually the well of delving further and further and further into a person practically runs out. Sure, you find new little things, you're doing new interactions daily, but the big, there, there comes a point when you just run out of new revelations about someone. And these are the people that are flighty in relationships. They live on the thrill of getting to know somebody new. They enjoy the flair of what it means to find out somebody's uh, innermost, uh, 
innermost workings and secrets, if you will. But a successful relationship is going to be entailed on the principle that you are building something greater than yourselves together. Men, if you want to feel, if, you're want, if you want your wife to feel purpose-filled, then you have to be building an empire together. You have to take ownership of something that is uniquely yours together. Only working with someone and building something will ever really reveal the true colors of the person that you're aspiring to get to know. I would venture that Joe and I would have half, would have been half as successful in our dating relationship if it hadn't been for Koinonia. Why? Is it anything particular to Koinonia? Yes and no. Yes in the sense that it is very formative, but no in the sense of that same principle can be applied to anyone seeking to do a relationship well. You have to find something that you're both passionate about and doesn't exist yet and build it up in order to really say, we created this together. This is special to us. We are doing this together. We're making something beautiful for the Lord together. Men, decide on something big that you want to see different in the world. That's the first step. You, I, like for me, Koinonia, I want to see something different in the world, so you start. You have, men, you have to dream massively big in order to accomplish something big. You have to be ambitious and you have to be ambitious about achieving something that scripture sees as great. You have to pursue something wholeheartedly and then invite your wife into that. And if I may make a biting indictment, most men never realize that their woman is not a Proverbs 31 woman who they can trust fully in all the things that we say because he doesn't have any all-consuming, mind-altering, life-consuming life goal for which he is striving. It's only when you really are sinking your whole heart and entire, entire well-being into something that you know if you can trust somebody, right? It's only when you go all in that you know if somebody actually has your back. Because if you have no skin in the game, if you really haven't pushed any chips in, then you don't have anything to trust anyone with. Right, and so if you really want to see if your Proverbs thirty, you have a Proverbs thirty-one woman, then you have to be under the crucible of some stressor. That's just the way it is. Your true colors come out when you're under pressure, when you're forced to be consistent and show up for two years at something, or to show up for ten years, or to put in long hours on something. That's when it really shows what kind of character a person has. All right, on to point number two: provision. One of the main items which a man must set out a vision for is how he will have that provision for his family. And that is why I want to start with vision, because that's very all-encompassing, that's very up here, and a subset of that is provision. Uh, Genesis 2.15, I think it's so appropriate to start right here. Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Did God create man to sit and meditate and be some cross-legged Buddha-type figure and just ponder the divine? No, he created him pre-fall to work and to keep. Man was to work as God's vice regent, his representative ruler on earth. And I have to say, Notice the priestly element right here in this passage as well. He was not only to work it, but he was also to keep the sanctuary, garden, pure and holy. His command of work and keeping as, keeping as a guardian were not the result of the fall. God's purpose for man was to cultivate value on his behalf and guard it against harm. Man was to make creation into something beautiful for God and to protect it for him, offering it to him as worship. Okay, So man was to create something beautiful and then turn that back to God. If you want to have a little bit of a confirmation that God's role, that this is God's role for men, each gender, I think this is very interesting, I think we proved it more, more succinctly per, perhaps, uh, for the women's role, but I, notice how the curse is shot at each gender's most satisfying and fulfilling element in life. Genesis 3, 17 through 19. Women have the purpose of serving the man faithfully and raising godly children and having that family like we talked about. 
and men are designed to provide. Then you see the curse is shot at both of those and both become significantly harder. Genesis 3. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your own food until you return to the ground, since from it were you taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. What makes this curse so devastating in my estimation is that it causes pain and suffering and difficulty to achieve what would give you the most satisfaction. God's curse was not just making the ground harder and birthing painful, but rather it meant that you now have to struggle to achieve satisfaction. If you want to achieve fulfillment of living the way you were designed to live, if you want true happiness, then you must go through pain in order to get it. Which is a very, I don't know, I just, poetically, it's, it's nice. It is so interesting. Like, the thing that you will be most satisfied with is the thing that is now the hardest to achieve. Well, I, mean, I don't know if you've noticed this, but pretty much all of God's punishments are very nice and poetic and ironic. They are. At the same time. <laughs> they very much are. And, and I must say, this is precisely why it is so anti-Christian to not provide. Unbelievers provide for their families because familial love remains strong enough, even in a post-curse world, to go through that struggle in order to provide for their family. But if we as Christians, as we've been talking about over and over again in Colossians, are in Christ designed to reverse the curse and to go back to Edenic conditions then how dare we despise work? 1 Timothy 5.8 Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And while the ground may still remain hard, so to speak, we are in a relationship with the one who is undoing the curse and work joyfully under him in order to restore our rightful place in the universe as God's vice regents who work the earth and keep the earth to present it to him as a beautiful creation and make it beautifully magnificent. Men, that is your rightful place to provide and to create value and will allow women to function rightfully in perfect harmony there. So vision combines with provision at this point. What do you want the earth to look like? This is the vision statement. What do you want the earth to look like in order for it to most fully redound to the glory of God? And once you've decided what you think your artistic contribution can be to creating the most beautiful world possible for God's glory, then comes work in which your effort is given as you help achieve the vision for how the earth can be most, how it can be best and most glorifying to God. How can I harness electricity to be most glorifying to God? Then a master electrician goes and does it to, cap, to take captive nature and make it beautiful for God. How can, Hayden, this is for you, how can, how can color and light be most harnessed to the glory of God? Then you go be and become a masterful photographer and artist. That's what it means to have a vision and then provision fit under that, is how can I make the world the most beautiful thing it can be for God, and then you go and execute that very thing. It is a struggle for me, but the consequence of this thought is that your work should be a synonymous word with worship in your mind. Colossians 3, 23-24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you go to work, you are serving Christ, which I think only confirms my suspicions of, you know, sort of this way of understanding Adam's role in creating beauty for God. The words for work and worship in the Old Testament um, are that have significant overlap. It was an integrated life. The same idea of working and keeping that we see in Genesis is articulated over in Numbers twice as the Levites were instructed to keep the tabernacle. They were told to work it and to keep it. 
And what I struggle with personally, and I just, I just articulated this to my prayer group, is that I have this false dichotomy between work and worship. I, like in my mind, I'm like, I can't wait to get off of work so that I can go worship, which only presents work as some, some evil, which is keeping me from my spiritual purpose, right? To worship God. And that doesn't make me any better at work. I can guarantee you that. It just makes me feel like a lesser human because I'm stuck doing something which I could be so much more honoring to God if I only you know, read scripture all day or something, right? But if we start viewing work as worship, number one, work will be a lot more enjoyable, I think. But also, it will be a much more glorifying experience to God and you'll be a much better light to your coworkers as well. For me, the practical step that I take in this is... Um, Clock watching, that's the main thing. Like I, I, in worship services, we, we immediately think like, oh, you look at your phone, you're like, oh, I really shouldn't have looked at my phone to see how long we have left in this sermon, right? Like that feels kind of bad, kind of guilty. But you go to work and you just like, you're counting literally the seconds on the clock to see like five hours, 37 minutes and 16 seconds until I'm done with this thing for today, right? But that same, same pang of conscience should hit you when you do that at work, because you're, you're trying to get out of worshiping God. And that's the way we should start thinking about work. You know, have you ever experienced a worship session that just flies by? Like, I mean, it could be five hours, but you're singing and having communion and, you know, you're, you're, you got a teaching session and you're just bawling and, you know, it's pole washer and you're, you're dying. And it's just so beautiful, right? And, and like five hours have just flown by and it's, it's amazing. That is that worshipful energy is what I would like for myself and every one of us to carry into our workday because work would go faster. It would be a much more glorifying experience to God. Now, if you will, yeah, I'm gonna do it. If you will allow me to rabbit trail just for a little moment here, um, and this is what I want you to do. What? Yeah, I try to do it for you guys. Don't do it to me. I got you. Um, if I may rabbit trail for a little moment, just I know that I've talked to some of you about trying to think like a philosopher and such. This is, I want to show you how, how I do this because this is what it means in my estimation to take biblical principles and then extrapolate them into political and social theory, okay? And, and this is the reason why I'm demonstrating doing this is because when you go out into a very secular world with, in my estimation, incredibly liberal ideas, there are some things that aren't exactly directly addressed in scripture. And if you're, if you only think on the level of, I got to find a reference to prove my point. I want you to start to learn to take in the biblical data, synthesize it, take it deep within, understand the meaning of all the verses tied together, and then develop a thought based on it. So one of the things, what this very concept is one of the lit, one of a litany of reasons that I find capitalism to be the most God-glorifying system. Capitalism takes men who revile and hate God's ways and makes it work. How? Because it becomes in their best interest to do so. Sinners will always, always selfishly look out for their own best interest. They will not look out for, according to total depravity, they will not look out for the interest of others. Primarily, they're looking out for themselves. So how could you ever take selfish people and get them to voluntarily serve other people while working to create value within God's creation that glorifies him. You make it in their best interest to do so. Capitalism takes the concept of working to make value in God's earth for God's glory and providing for others as one and the same end. Capitalism is so designed that your act of worship to God is also the same act that will provide for your family by voluntary service to other human beings, which is beautiful. And I trust that you can see on your own, on your own why socialism reinforces the ex exact opposite ideology. Even more incredibly, capitalism helps to show you where your talents are actually most needed in the world. The invisible hand, as John Smith puts it, does this for you. You wonder, how could I possibly know what is the way in which 
God's creation can most be benefited right now. Ideally, and there are plenty of other forces that interfere with this, but that is exactly what wages are designed to do, is to show how much value you are creating in the system in order to present something that is beautiful. There is a reason that I wear blue and not a lab coat in the hospital, right? Because I don't provide as much value to the system as the MDs do, right? Could surgeries, am I an essential part of that process in physical therapy? Yes, I am, because we are needed to help people regain function. But I can tell you for sure that people are never gonna be regaining function if they don't get the surgery that they need, right? Mm -hmm. And so in that theoretical sense, wages are designed to reflect the fact that I am providing a little bit less value than this person is. And so it's not to say that human, human estimation of value is a perfect indicator of what God wants you to do. That's not what I'm trying to say. But it is to say that this system is designed to reinforce that God's greatest glory and your family's greatest provision is the same as creating value in a beautiful system that works harmoniously and accounts for sin and human nature. So I, I, do, I go on that rabbit trail just because I want to show you that while political theory is not near as important as theology and it's not some, it is not a hill to die on, the reason why I want to show you these things is that it is very possible to take biblical data and synthesize it into a thought about what does this mean for the human condition and then engage meaningfully, meaningfully, not just yelling words at people when you have discussions on socio-political elements. There is a way to address it as a Christian and not just be like, oh, I grew up this way. This is what I was told to think, or this is what I like. There's a way to take the biblical data, digest it yourself, and come up with a reasonable, rational way to discuss these topics with people. And so I hope you see that the way society is set up is either meant to reinforce God's creation and his created order, or to tear away and tear down from it. And that is why it is important to be educated and intelligent as you go about interacting with society on socio-political levels in, in areas that I will be the first to admit scripture does not explicitly address. All right, with that little rabbit trail done, uh, my, final, my final main P point word here is passivity. This is where men refuse to act, where men refuse to act. And, if you do a quick Google search, it's really interesting. I think even secular circles are recognizing that the passivity of men is not, uh, not something that's helpful for society at all. <laughs> There's no element in which it is. This is where men refuse to work and to keep what God has given to them. And though I've just spoken of the monetary elements in terms of capital, uh, how, how many of you have heard of the term, and I say this all the time and I feel like I lose you guys when I say it. Um, how many of you have heard the term relational capital before? Okay, about half, all right. Relational capital, this is the idea that in the same way that you work for money, you have to work for everything in life, including relationships. How do you create capital of any sort? Generally, we exchange it, exchange it for time and service. We have to give up capital. We have to give up time and service for that capital. Relationships, money, etc. It all takes time and effort to create and to keep. By the way, isn't this another beautiful thing that capitalism teaches? Capitalism teaches that reflecting God, we have the ability to create value from something which didn't exist before and protect it to keep it valuable. Socialism, on the other hand, teaches that there is a set amount of value in the world and everyone only gets a certain little section of the pie. This is why another reason capitalism more mimics the created order in the sense that it allows us to have creative ability deemed to us to create value as a little reflection of what God did in creation. Nevertheless, passivity. What happens when men go passive? Very, very simple. People get hurt. People get hurt, less value gets created for God, less value gets created for people. And it should be bad enough right there to stop. But because no value is created, there is no reward to be given, and thus your family goes unprovided for, right? Because what it means to be active, which is the opposite of passive, is that 
you are creating value and that value can be exchanged for capital. Now, though I'm speaking in terms that are rather monetary, I want you to try to separate that in your mind. Don't just hear those terms and think money. I want you to think spiritual. Passive is a great word for this because it is the exact opposite of being active. If you, you want to have love in your home, men, it's going to take activity, real activity. Love just doesn't happen passively. It's hard work because of the fall to create value of any sort. You have to dedicate time and energy to it. You want peace in your home, you're going to have to actively pursue peace. You want joy, you have to actively pursue joy. Joy will not find you on the sidelines of life. You must create it and you must keep it. You must work for it. If you want money to provide for your family, it isn't going to make itself. You have to create value and trade value for money. Now, I'm just, I'm just curious. For those of you who are scholastics in nature, uh, this, is, this is one of the things that we, Lexi and I have talked about a little bit, where I don't read as much as her, but I just sit back and think a whole lot. Do any of you ever sit back and just ponder life and wonder, it's like, it's like living entropy. Your life is like living entropy, that you wonder why it just seems like every single thing in life takes effort to work correctly. Like it, like literally never does anything just build itself for you in life, whether it's an emotional state that's healthy or a family that's healthy. It all is taking energy to keep yourself in a good mental state and to keep it. Like literally everything would devolve to chaos if you've read Bells, Snakes, and Songbirds. Chaos, control, and social contract, right? It, it, it is all, everything's taking energy to build. That's because everything functions on this simple principle is that nothing that is of worth any value happens passively. It all is created actively. Your refrigerator in your home probably does a better job than some of your men at your home because it's actually fighting entropy. Right? By creating a cold environment, it's doing a better job than some of the men in your home to fight entropy, which is so sad. Now you can go insult someone and say, my fridge is doing a better job than you are leading this home. <laughs> no, um, no, don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, but, put it in your back pocket. That's funny. But, no, 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 we got a quote that Sam said. This is what it means to be truly, uh, uh, for me as, a, as somewhat of a philosopher, this is my highest metaphysic, if you're familiar with that term, is the word relationship. The very fundamental premise around which my vision statement and any good vision statement that I could ever give you, any good one, is built on a relationship with both God and with men. Glorify God by enjoying him forever. That's based on relationship. Service in relationship is how all value is created, whether physical or spiritual. I do, I do believe that there is a man with little to no value or worth to his name, and it is the man who has never worked to create relationship. Notice I didn't say poor. Working for a relationship can be rewarded in different ways, some monetary and some with the intangible beauty of love and peace and joy and sweet, a sweet home with heart overflowing satisfaction. Men, that is what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to create value in relationships so that, your relational, so that the relational value is used to provide for the ones that you love. And the, the trouble with men is that they only seem to see this in terms of money, right? That, that is one of the fundamental problems that we see in men in our society. They grasp this principle even subconsciously, but only when there's a dollar sign attached to it. But what it, what it means to be a successful man and a successful leader is that you recognize that there are things that are valuable that are not money, yet it takes the same amount of work and effort as if you were working for a fee, right? Everything is centered on value. Everything is centered on relationship. But importantly, not everything is centered on money. There are things more important than money, and yet they require those same ideas of vision provision, and activity, not passivity. With passive men, not only is relational value not created, but if you don't keep something, like Genesis says, you lose it. 
If you don't keep it, you will lose it. It is not neutral, my friends. If you are not creating value in your relationships with your spouse or at work or at church or with the brothers, you will begin to lose value in that relationship. Mark it. And while it is not earmarked as the first sin, Adam's first mistake, at the very least, is that he went passive. Genesis 3.6. So when the women saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. He was with Eve. He was right there. He let her be deceived. And you know that the New Testament says that Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't. That means he watched his wife right there, knowing full well that what was happening was wrong. And what did he do? Did he actively go out and do something sinful? No. What was his first mistake? He watched. He did nothing. And so ever since, men have slipped into passivity with only to regain a little flair of it when money said it was in my best interest. But in terms of relationship, men always tend to go passive. And if women follow their role in the curse and try to rule over men, as Genesis 3 talks about, then men will fall into one of two reactions. Either they will submit and the created order will be flipped. They will go passive. Or they will seek to crush that rebellion. And so the classic two issues of men you see presented right there. Either they do nothing and become deafeningly neutral and passive and bleh as leaders, or they become violent and abusive. And it takes Christ to get into neither of those two options and to become an actively strong leader, but gentle and kind. For whatever reason, no one embodies these principles better to me. No one gives off these vibes more than David. I don't know why. As I was writing this, I just thought, David, David, David. I didn't have a good text to, to turn to to find all of it. But it, if you just know the life and story of David, passion, vision, provision as a king, it was, it's all there. And if I may make a, a rather... I point out one more thing. The, the big thing that David's faulted for is his, uh, his affair outside of marriage and, you know, cheating on another man's wife and then having him killed and that all started because he was being passive and he hung back at the palace instead of going out to fight like he should have a very good point a very good point even in some of david's sins and the sins of the great christians like paul i if this this may sound a little bit crass but i do have an appreciation for how they sinned if you will and what i mean by that is that the best leaders the best men that you will ever meet are either going to be very good or very bad because they are active. And David actively took what he wanted. Was he in the wrong place? Was he being passive in the domain of life that he should have been? Yes. David's other big sin, which people gloss over, is his pride in the census of the people. Mm -hmm. That's a big one. What was he doing? He was actively taking pride in the kingdom that he was building. Now, was he wrong in the sense that he didn't divert the glory to God? Yes. But I can at least appreciate that he was proud of building a kingdom. And I can at least appreciate that Saul was passionate about something and became Paul. Right? Like, Paul would never have been the apostle that he was if he was not passionate about killing Christians. And it's the same in Revelation, right? Christ wants somebody that's blazing hot for him or just cold. Be cold or be hot. Because you'll either be great, you'll either be plowing a lot of dirt in the wrong direction or plowing a lot of the dirt in the right direction, but at least plow dirt. Because there's nothing less manly than to not plow any dirt at all. And while they may be bad men, at least they're being manly. There's a, sorry, I'm going to interject. You're fine. Number yeah. one, passion, uh, if I remember correctly, translates in the original language, it means suffering. So a little bit of poetic harmony there. But also, um, there's a, an Italian word called virtù. That it sounds like virtue, but it's applied very similarly. But it doesn't mean goodness. It just means something that's respectable, and um, you you can respect it even if it's something that's wrong. So, like for example, sure. a tyrant uh, who wins an incredibly unlikely battle. There's something impressive about it, but it's not necessarily a good thing. And good or men should at least strive to be virtù. Shouldn't strive to be impressive if not. At least that's what I'm sensing that you're trying to say. And um, this is what I, bringing it back to the Christian frame, what I, what, this is what I love about 
about Christianity and manliness is there is one male ever who has embodied all of the alpha male principles ever and yet was full of the tenderest love possible, right? He didn't, he didn't go over into either extreme. He was strong with the people he needed to be strong with, which was the religious leaders and the people who were hurting and vulnerable and poor and oppressed. He was the tenderest, most loving person to give them a hand up ever. And so you see that beautiful balance in Christ is that, yes, completely strong, has all the power, and yet refrains when it's the appropriate time and knows how to use it when it is the appropriate time. Men, while some of you here have really strong opinions publicly, I see passivity in you with your significant others because you don't want to cause her any emotional distress. You simply overlook faults. You justify this as the fact that this is what it means to be loving, that you suppress your desires or concerns for her because you wouldn't want to add emotional stress to the situation. She already has so much going on. How could I possibly be responsible for pushing here, pushing her? You know, I want to seem like an emotional solace, not something stressful. And now there is a balance to what I'm going to say here because there are certainly, oh, please hear me. There are certainly times to hold your words, but there are times to focus. There are times to focus on positivity and be intention, intentional in not speaking of the faults that you see. I do that with certain individuals in this group in the sense that I see faults and Nathan, I was just talking about this with you. I see faults and yet I don't always say them because I know I don't have the relational capital to expend over critiquing someone. I have to know the right time. I have to know the right amount that I can get away with in encouraging them without severing that relationship and having no voice in their life. And so there are times to speak and there are times to hold. But men, I call upon you to push your woman outside of her comfort zone. By way of example, there are times when, uh, when Jojo wants to avoid doing something and I gently probe and scrutinize why that is the case. In addition to asking verbal questions, men always have your head on the swivel for nonverbal cues as well. Most of the time, it isn't that I care at all about the action itself that she is avoiding or not avoiding. What I am scrutinizing down to is probing to see if her motive is out of avoidance in some sort of irrationality or some fear. If it is not logical, I would say 100% of the time, you will find it's also sinful. If it's not rational, it is sinful. And if it is, if it is based out of fear, if it's made out of some insecurity, I need to be tender and emotionally present in working through that issue. I need to be loving. I need to have a sense in which I care for the sense that this is really difficult for them, even if it isn't difficult for me. It's real to them. And therefore it is real. And yet I need to be one who is pushing her out of her comfort zone. Do I say something to the effect of you should go and fix XYZ problem in your life? No, absolutely not. And I, I confront that. But what I do is I confront that sinful underlier and the tone should be one of, sin, uh, of, of tender concern. Something like, I know this is very tough for you. As head of this relationship, I'm declaring that this is something that you, you have to change. You must change. But how can we go through this together? How can I endure this alongside of you and assist you in overcoming that insecurity? Can I offload another area of life that is stressful so that you can really work on addressing this area well? Can you share with me what the emotional baggage is like as you go through this situation? What are, when I say these words, even though you agree with me, what are some of the what are the first emotions that pop up when I say you need to work through this? I, okay, I, I don't care if you agree or not. We'll get there. What are, what are, what's the first emotional thing that you have? Because guess what? Most people don't function rationally first. They function emotionally first and support it with rational ideas. And as a leader, you have to be adept to the fact that I need to consider the emotional element first, handle that, point out the parts where we need to improve here and then work to the rational component. That is what will be making you a successful leader. But the end goal is to push and to be better. That's what we talked about in, or in Ephesians is to make sure that you are pushing your wife toward holiness and that you have to push somebody out of their comfort zone and 
And this goes back to having a vision. You can't be so caught up that you don't see faults. Everyone has their faults, and it isn't that you don't love somebody fully just because you say you have a fault, right? Like, it, it shouldn't be taken even within yourself to say, oh, they're not perfect. I must be being so critical and unloving of them. No, you can be perfectly loving and say, hey, if you're not perfect, that's fine. How can we get through it together? Not you need to go do this on your own. So men, you must push your your woman in some sense, but as Peter says, as we talked about last week, you must do, or two weeks ago, you must do this in, a, in an understanding way that recognizes that she is the weaker vessel. It doesn't mean you shy away and never do it, but it does mean that you are consoling. Even so, women and men, but women can build up emotional walls. Men, you must declare that emotional walls is an unacceptable behavior in your relationship. Have, have your relationship be one such that hiding and, oop, tough thing, pull in, hide, is never an acceptable part of your relationship because it will never foster the intimacy. That's one of those things that you have to set as, hey, I love you, but you can't go hiding every time something difficult comes up. Then, if you say that, most importantly, be, be the kind of listener and lover that makes it easy and possible for her to open up to you, right? Oh, open up to me, open up to me, smack. You know, like that's never nice. <laughs> Fastest way to get someone to never open up to you again is just criticize them when they do. So even if they're fundamentally wrong and you realize that, you may even, and this is just, this is just bonus material here, you may even be wise to take, take a moment of verbally demarcating that point in the relationship and saying, all right, Let's work through the emotional elements first. I know this, I may not agree with you, but let, let me hear where your head's at. And then take that moment to say, all right, okay, I'm going to shift a little bit and speak this way. It helps create the fact that you're not trying to dismiss somebody's emotions as unimportant, but it is saying that your emotions are important and because they're important, we need to work through this in a, in a real and practical way. So, um, I, yeah, we're running out of time, but we got three minutes, I got two paragraphs. Um, I'll just close up here. In, in preparation for um, the lessons to come in, in the coming, coming weeks, we're going to wrap up uh, the marriage series with talking about sex in, in the coming two weeks. And we'll, we'll be largely based in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, but if I can just tie those two weeks in and just give a little nugget before we get there. Um, one, of the, one of the concepts that I've been listening to in podcast studying um, studying to try to prepare to, to listen uh, or to teach on on sex is there is there is something which one podcaster referred to as um, nice guy syndrome and the guy who was speaking on this identified as a recovering nice guy uh, which he differentiated from a kind guy nice guys never want to stir the waters they never state what they personally want for fear that the wife may react against it they may even struggle to know what they actually personally even want because it's been so lost in crushing them down in, in just trying to patronize to the wife's and cater to the wife's desires. That being a nice guy in that context is not what it means to be a good leader and a good man. Uh, it, it's a problem in just general relational re leading and it is a problem in the bedroom as well. And we'll, we'll talk um, hopefully in the coming weeks a little bit about this, this very important principle, whether it's in general communication or in sexuality, is how to have your own desires, your own thoughts, your own visions, your own plans and dreams, and yet be completely considerate and preferential of the other person's more than your own. That is, I mean, if it's in a nutshell what I'm gonna say in the next two weeks, it's have your own desires, have your own thoughts, have your own things that you find pleasurable and enjoyable, and yet the other person's having their own are far more important than yours. That will, with good communication, lends you to being in a very successful spot, both generally relationally and in that subsection of sexuality. So if I can conclude with just that final P word of, it is passion. Men, do not seek to find your passion, bring your passion to everything you do. You will be searching for an entire lifetime if you attempt to find your passion. You have to bring your passion and recognize that your work, whatever it is, and whether the secular system recognizes it as valuable through wages or not, is worship to God. Bring your passion as you create value for God 
and and in, in so doing, provide for your family. Those are the same thing. Worshiping God through creating value and providing for your family because of the capital that that value has garnered for you. And finally, in summary, so not only we are being passionate in creating a vision, we're being passionate in our provision. And then finally, instead of being apathetic in your passivity to your home, bring passion and rule your home with energy and and vim and vigor and excitement and and be the most loving and kind of guys. Not a nice guy that just pushes himself down and becomes passive and apathetic, but one who is kind and kind and loving and actually leading and doing something. And and, and the closing thought that I had, if you were a part of Fasantos, is, and I, I'll just add the word men to it, men are to be good, not tame. Men are to be good, not tame. Right on nine o'clock, clock watching. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I, I hope that that's an encouragement to you and you see what I'm trying to draw. I know we didn't work just through one text real heartily and hopefully we'll get back to a little bit of that here in a few weeks. But um, any, any closing comments or thoughts um, just to share real quickly, try to keep it brief before we, before we finish up. Um, I have one, and I guess this is more directed towards females, but um, I know like you talked about this a little bit. One thing that I really encourage in you is to work on being open to criticism. Yeah. And it's obviously constructive, but I, like when you're in a relationship like that, it's not like if he brings something up to you and says, you know, I think that we should talk about this and work on this, or you, know, you have a problem with doing something and he challenges you on it, Realize that it's not because he just wants to challenge you. He'll do that with other guys, and they have competitive things and you know, tackle each other and do whatever. Like it's not that type of thing. Like he's he. It's not because there's this desire to like attack you in some way. And so it takes courage for them to do that and to come to you with that because there is a fear a lot of times with how you are going to react. And so take that with grace and realize that their motivation for doing that is out of love. And so I encourage you to just be very open to those things and to actually try and work on them because if they're coming to you with that, it's something that they see as like extremely important and something that probably is biblically grounded that you should definitely consider. And so even though someone else hasn't come to you, it might just be because it's something that is really deep and personal that no one has had the confidence to come to you and challenge you on before. And so, um, you know, and that's like one thing with us. Of course, we've been together for a while, but like I thought that we were on the same page on everything until I was challenged on something and I was like, well, okay, like this is, it's weird at first, but once you start overcoming some of those things, then it's like you will, like that is the most united that you will ever, ever be. So that's my encouragement too. And it can go the other way too. I mean, you know, women, you can challenge the, the male too. I've done that yeah. time too. But, um, Barnes and Nobles particularly. Yes, but, yeah. But, um, yeah, so I think that's my challenge, so I guess to both sides, but like be, be open and be willing to have graceful and loving conversations about those things and actually take it seriously and try and do something about it because I think that you will be very grateful that you yeah. listened and, and heeded that later. And men, you better not bring it up out <laughs> for any reason outside of love. If you're doing it in anger, she'll read right through it, and it'll just yeah. devolve into a fight. So your tone is very important in how you do these things. Very important. Um, yeah, I'm sure you guys can only imagine how those conversations go with me. Um, yeah, it's, it's fun. I'm, I'm sure I just go about it in a very funny academic way, but um, we have an inside joke that she, uh, she never really has much for new... Uh, philosophical insights or worldview contrib contributions because I've already thought it through five times over by the time we're discussing it. But, but, she, but it, it, is, it can go both ways, and I hope you guys do that in a loving way. But one of the reason I say that is, men, you have to have a rationale, right? If you're saying something, the most frustrating thing as a child and in a relationship is somebody that's like, you're wrong, and then they're like, I don't know why, but you're, you just are, right? Like, so if you're going to confront somebody, you got to think, got to think it through, got to have a rationale for it, got to have a rationale for why it's in their best interest, not just yours, to do this thing and then present it in a tone and in words that are very loving. So, 
All right, um, let's go have someone pray. Uh, I'd love for one of the guys to pray um, over over this if if you if somebody would. So. Stephen's praying. Okay. Who's got to do rock paper scissors? No. <clears throat> Dear Lord, thank you so much for bringing us all here today and for giving Sam the wisdom and the words to speak to us men and to just point out or remind us that who we are and where we are going matters and that we need to have some plan for our lives that best enables us to live into the person that you have designed, Lord. Um, and that as we do that, that we need to learn to not just have that vision, but also to provide for ourselves and for others who accompany us on that journey, Lord. Um, and that is an incredibly difficult thing. And so I pray that you would help us with that as men, Lord, and that you would help us to be active uh, and to pursue virtue instead of sitting back passively and letting the world uh, pass us by. Lord, please just grant us the, the strength to be godly and honorable men who pursue you as our vision, Lord. In your heavenly name, amen. Amen. amen.